Hey, welcome everybody to nwczradio.com. Channel One's down the rabbit hole. My name is Big D. And I'm Brandon. And it is, of course, great to have everybody along. Thanks so much for tuning in to a brand new episode. Hope you enjoyed last week's episode on Kurt Cobain because we're sort of staying in the same arena with yeah, this week's it was, show. It was kind of one that just kind of came up because when we were talking about Kurt Cobain, it was one of those things that came up and we're both like, yes, let's do this one. Yeah, I think we're going to go into a realm where I don't know if a lot of people even know this story because it was sort of a Seattle inside mm -hmm. the grunge music kind of thing. Yes. It, it, I'll be honest, though. It was surprising. My wife knows this one. Really? Well, it was yeah, big I, news. It, this is the weird thing about this. It was huge news in Seattle. Yes. Outside of Seattle, I don't know if it was that big a news. Yeah, like the second I said her name, Amber's like, oh, yeah, I remember that. Like, oh, wow, I, I'm actually kind of shocked, but... Well, before we get into it, I want to remind you that you can email us at downtherh at protonmail.com. Downtherh at protonmail.com. Thanks so much for the great emails that continue to flood in. And we appreciate that. And we try to get back to you as soon as we can. Sometimes there's a little bit of delay because it's summer and we're both kind of busy. But we will get back to you eventually. Yes, we will. And also want to thank all the platforms that carry the, the big program tongue-in-cheek there <laughs> and <laughs> for those of you out there who share this with your friends and your co-workers or whoever you're sharing it with maybe your enemies i don't really care but we appreciate that as well because that's the driving force of this show yes it is very it, much so it truly is so this week we're going to talk about another member of the 27 club and this is probably the quietest member or the least known member however you want to put it sort of the member in the shadows yes. of rock and roll. Her name is Mia Zapata. Yes. And it's one of those ones that, I mean, growing up, I, I knew of her. Um, and I knew of the band, and I, I remember the gets. But it was, I didn't know all the story until I really went down at this time. Well, Mia Zapata, like I said, in the inner circle of the grunge music. And this happened about a year before Cobain. Yes. So this was like the first shot fired at the grunge scene, which eventually burned itself out. When Lane Staley died, when Kurt Cobain died, and when, when all that stuff, that basically signaled the end of what we knew in Seattle as grunge. Yes. And what, what I find much. funny, it, going back through this, I forgot about... <laughs> Being in Seattle during this time, being involved in this scene at the time, the clothing that went along with it. Everybody associates torn jeans and Converse or, or ripped shoes and these kind of lager shirts or whatever. That's not what was going on in the early days. No. That became a marketed thing. And mm -hmm. I still to this day don't know how that even started I, I have no idea because i was there i remember when all of a sudden everybody started showing up looking like sort of ragtag loggers i was like this yeah. is the grunge look man and i'm like it is i don't remember this it was weird but i mean i i can't say much because that's that's how i dressed <laughs> i know and i think that's sort of i think that was kind of the the irony of the whole thing is that that was sort of I don't know, just sort of a sloppy Northwest casual, comfy dress way to go. I, th I think it was because it's one of those things because we really thought about it. It was so funny because um, my brother, I was more the grunge side, skateboard, everything else. My brother was, I mean, for lack of a better word, a hick. Um, <laughs> but we pretty much had the same clothes. Yeah. We just wore them differently where, you know, he wore the flannels buttoned up everything else and, uh, you know, and cowboy hats where I didn't wear a hat. And if I did wear a hat, it was a baseball hat, you know, backwards. Um, and I wore the flannel with the T-shirt underneath it and opened up and not tucked in and jeans, you know, and then whatever shoes I was wearing, usually visions or something like that. But I mean, it was still pretty much like the same clothing, just we wore it differently. I, and I do think 
that was part of the case. I, I remember walking into Nordstrom's one day during this craze. Yep. And all of a sudden, everything's flannel and ripped jeans, and they're all like $90. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Wait. I knew right then and there, this whole scene had jumped a shark. Oh, it had. It had. I mean, because for me, I was one of those ones, everything, all of my, and it sounds bad to say this, and it makes me sound like a, a preppy in a way. Um, all of my flannels were Eddie Bauer. Eddie Bauer was different yeah. back then. That was the only flannels I wore. They had to be Eddie Bauer flannels. And I wore, uh, my jeans had to be Arizona's. But part of that was because I was really into biking. And my it's my thighs were too big to wear five hundred ones. I'd rip them because <laughs> I, I had bicyclist, you know, legs because right. I was constantly biking everywhere. I was mountain biking all over the place, so I had bicyclist legs. And I mean, five hundred ones don't fit bicyclists. Well, that's just a side note because going back through this, I had forgotten. I'm looking yeah. at the old photos and I'm reading. Yep. Uh, it's kind of like diaries from some of the musicians back then. They were talking about their you know, what they wore and the, the scene that was created and all this stuff. And I was having flashbacks and I was thinking about that whole sort of flannel mm-hmm. jeans, uh, floppy tennis shoes and, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. And yeah. it's just so funny that it became associated with grunge because it was actually, I think it was all that they could afford. And it's kind of what everybody was wearing. It really wasn't, had nothing to do with the music. No. And it's one of those things I remember back, like, I mean, because I, I didn't come from a, a wealthy family. Most of my, my stuff was hand-me-down, usually from my brother. So that's why, I mean, the flannel and everything was more to hand-me-down because that's what he wore. Or most of the stuff, like, we got our one pair of, like, set of school clothes before school started. Everything else we got, we got from Valley Village. I mean, all of our clothing, you know, besides, like, socks and underwear came from the thrift store. Nothing wrong with that. Just ask but Macklemore. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that was, I mean, but that was kind of the thing. And I mean, it was, it's definitely one of those looking back. I mean, I even remember I had the haircut that like, if you go watch like 90, anything nineties, the whole shaved head with the, basically a mohawk that was long, like right. gleaming the cube or something like any of those movies. That was my haircut. Well, interestingly enough about Mia Zapata, she was not like a lot of the people that found themselves in the Seattle music scene. She wasn't from Seattle. No, a she, lot of people gravitated and it was that and there was one of the ones I was listening to was talking about how like she came over because of the big boom. And I'm like, no, in all reality, if you really look, they came over right before it happened. Yes. Like they didn't come over because of the boom. They were part of the boom. Yes. And they like, they were sort of slated to be part of the boom on yes. that, that girl side, you know, the G-R-R-R-R-L, that movement. Yep. And the, she was a musician's musician. Yes. A lot of Everyone the bands in Seattle her. liked her. They, they liked to hang out with her and mm-hmm. her band. They, they played on bills with a lot of the Seattle bands. A lot of the Seattle bands that we know and love, they were opening for the Gets. Yeah. Before, I mean, before Mia Zapata died. So they were opening. The Gets were bigger than some of the bands that we know now. I mean, most people think that if she hadn't died, the Gits probably would have been bigger than Nirvana. And I, I don't know. I've listened to their music. I never saw them, oddly enough, during this whole time. I knew who she, I knew who they were. I didn't know who she was. I no. knew who they were. I never saw them play, but I have listened to some of the recordings. And I mean, maybe somebody saw something that I didn't, but I'm like, eh, I don't know. There was about... 50 other bands in Seattle that sounded just like that between Seattle and Olympia. There was. And I mean, I'll be honest, I agree. Um, there was, but I mean, it was kind of one of those things, but I mean, you could say the same thing about Nirvana. Right. What if Kurt Cobain had passed away before, right before they hit it? Yeah. The people would have been saying the same thing. Oh yeah. They were slated to really go somewhere and maybe they would have, maybe they wouldn't have. Uh, who knows? Yeah. But we yeah, do so know I- this, that her death rocked, the Seattle scene, it, it actually rocked Seattle. A lot of people were concerned about it because there was this sort of naivete going on in Seattle at the time. Mm-hmm. It's hard to explain it now because if you look at downtown Seattle, it looks like a zombie apocalyptic movie. It does. It, it it's is horrible. It is awful. But there was a time 
where you, you would go to downtown Seattle and there were lots of clubs and you mm-hmm. could park and you could walk around and it was very safe. And it you was, was kind of almost kind of innocent in a way. Mm-hmm. You could stay out late, two, three in the morning. You close down like the Central or you'd close down the Comet or whatever. And you'd walk to your car and you'd go home. And it was everybody was seemed to be on good terms, I will say. Yeah, I mean, because I can remember around that time, and I mean, I was 14, 13, 14, right in that age, and I was hanging out up there. I would go to that, you know, because there was a lot of the underage clubs you could get into, and a lot of them, if you knew the right people, you can get in no matter how old you were. For sure. Um, that we would go up there, and I mean, I had friends that were older that could drive, would drive up there, and we'd be like, cool, see you in a bit, and we'd go do our own thing and just say, hey, we need to be... At, you know, two o'clock, you need to be at this spot where the car is because yeah, I'm be a, leaving. Be a fourth in Yesler. We're leaving. Yeah, we're leaving at two o'clock. If you're not there, you know, we had pagers, you know, you know, but that was really it. It's pretty much if you weren't there at two o'clock, they'd page you pretty much, you know, with whatever code that we had. It was usually boobs that basically <laughs> said, we're leaving you, <laughs> you know, right? figure out your own way home. And you could go to Pioneer Square. There were. I don't know, maybe seven clubs within three blocks. And you could go to any one of those. You could head down to like the heart of downtown. And there were several down there on fourth and second. And there were even some at Pioneer Square. They were everywhere. They were everywhere. They were. And we never thought anything about our safety. Our our safety was never a thought. And it's one of those things I don't think a lot of people see it now with like the, the helicopter parents and everything. You know, it's the big joke that everyone keeps making right now. There used to literally be a commercial that came on at 10 that says it's 10 o'clock. Do you know where your kids are? To remind parents that they had kids. <laughs> That's a fact. That is a true statement. I'll have to, fi- I'm gonna have to find that. I'm going to find that commercial. We're going to play it yeah. on here one of these days. And it's one of those things that, I mean, it was a different time. It wasn't, we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have all these tracking devices. We didn't have all that. It was pretty much, you know, you went out and did your thing. You know, you called a cab, you did whatever. There was no Uber. There was none of that. And Seattle and was different. There were cops was. everywhere. Mm-hmm. It was well lit. The mm-hmm. Even the, I'll just say the bouncers and the people who ran the clubs seemed to be very responsible in, in certain ways. I mean, obviously yes. it's a club. There's things going on probably in the back yeah. that shouldn't have been. But on the surface, I never worried about going into a venue. I never worried about my car being parked down the street. I never worried about being in the back alley while the, you know, the people I was with were smoking or something. Yeah. I would never do that now. No. Uh, you know, I, I just, I don't know how any club or you know, outside of maybe some of the more mainstays, I don't know how they even survive. And I think they have all moved out into the suburbs, you know. They have or they've disappeared. I mean, it's one of those things, like you said, I mean, there used to be, what, seven or eight just in Pioneer Square, which, I mean, a lot of people who aren't from Seattle, Pioneer Square is like maybe a three or four blocks. Yeah. That's it. Mm -hmm. So we're not talking a huge area. And you paid one fee and you could go to any and you could bounce around. You got like a stamp that let you go to to go to all of them. Um, Now you'd be lucky, I think, to find seven clubs in all of Seattle. I think you're I think you're right. I mean, I've moved out and I hadn't been to the club scene in Seattle for a long long time and if I did, it was over in Ballard or it was mm-hmm. in on the east side or it was not downtown, I'll tell you that. Yeah. That's why I point to this incident here and to Cobain's death and Lane Staley's death and a few other things <clears throat> that really wrecked the scene. But there's some interesting things about this Mia Zapata incident that I believe there's a lot of questions still here. Oh, yeah. I, I do, too. I think the official narrative and the official, and I even think the guy that they nailed, it could all be wrong. I think they needed to clean this slate and find somebody. And... There's a lot of questions, so as we go through this, we normally don't do murder mystery podcast or anything, but there are some conspiracies around this, and when we get to the end, I'm going to explain why I think this is a much bigger deal than it was even at the time. 
I agree. And it's one of those things, I mean, uh, for those of you that listen to my, my midweek and the, the Gacy, I flat out point out on that, that there's quite a bit of evidence that they planted the main piece of evidence that nailed Gacy. They got it right. Cause they, I mean, he's a lunatic, but there's quite a bit of evidence that, that they planted the evidence to be able to get him. And this is another one of those cases where I think this one might be that, I mean, they, they may have got it right. They may have got it wrong where they had to close the case. Yeah. And that's what happened with Gacy. They had to close the peace case. So they planted evidence and then suddenly like everything else fell into place and they found 32 more bodies than they expected. Yeah. So this story for all intents and purposes starts in 1986. That's where we're going to pick it up. And this is in Ohio at Antioch college. And this is where Mia Zapata forms this band and at the time they called it the sniveling little rat face gets which is reference to a monty python skit Uh, but then it was too long so they just shortened it to the gets which it was a a big thing in the 80s because there's a couple other bands like that like thrill kill a lot of people don't realize you know their real full name was my life with the thrill kill cult yes and there was a lot of bands that had those long names and they're like okay we need to bring this down you know, like KMFDM, most people don't realize what that really stands for. Right. <laughs> I had one guy that loved KMFDM, and I'm like, you realize what that stands for, right? And they're like, no. No, nope, like, yeah, look it up. <laughs> yeah, go look it up. It's it's quite funny. But they're actually, they enjoy that band. So, it, yeah, it's weird. They get together. They become the gets. They are doing their college thing, and people are liking them a little bit. They put out a couple of, I don't know, I'll just say singles. Nothing major. I, I did read that they, they a lot of the stuff I read said that in Ohio they actually had a pretty good college following. They did. I mean, they weren't huge by any means, but they had a decent college fo- following in that area. So, yeah. I mean, they. And that's why I find it amazing that they relocated to Seattle because, as you said, the Seattle scene hadn't taken off yet. No. It makes me wonder if there was a band that came there from Seattle that they, which very likely could have happened, was went on tour. They met them in Ohio, whatever, and they were like, "Hey, come to Seattle. You know, you need to see this scene that's bustling." Because I mean, for someone in Ohio, wouldn't have known that that the scene was about to explode oh, in no. Seattle. In Seattle, you could feel it. You could you feel could, there was something but you special didn't that know we had. It. Like, we felt it. We, we thought we had something special going on. But a lot of times there's places that feel that and it never comes to fruition. Yeah. But I wonder if that was just kind of one of those things where maybe somebody, you know, from the Seattle scene happened to meet them in Ohio and convince them that we did have something special and that's why they came here. It, it was they, happening. I had questions on that, too. Yeah, it was happening. There were people who were coming here. Uh, obviously, something was in the air and people felt it. And I also think we had... I will just say this from an observational point because I was pretty involved, but well, very involved. One of the things, and, and I talked about this a lot when I was doing my music podcasting mm-hmm. in Seattle at that time, what was very, very special was the bands that were all playing were all friends. There was no animosity. There was no jealousy. There was no competition. In fact, it was the opposite. They encouraged each their fans to go see that band or mm-hmm. another band. Those bands would encourage their fans. And even if they didn't sound the same, they would get on the same bill. It was one of the first times you had this sort of crossover where you'd have almost like a country punk band with a singer-songwriter band, with a metal band, and then a grunge band, which it wasn't called grunge at the time. It was just kind of punk metal or whatever. I, they didn't even call it grunge at the time. No, they didn't. It wasn't until later that it became became grunge. But yeah, it was kind of, you would have that, where you'd show up, and that's how a lot of us got into different types of music. You would go, and you're like, I'm a rock guy. And then you'd be there, and all of a sudden you see, like, Soundgarden or, you know, uh, Alice Reverend James, Horton or, Heat or somebody. Oh, yeah, or Reverend Horton Heat, like, someone like that. And you're like, oh, I like this. And it would change. And I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of people, you know, and a lot of people my age, in your age that came out of the Seattle area, we have such a huge, like, we're not one pigeonholed into one style of music. We all listen to so many different things. I agree. I mean, I can, and I'm not a huge fan of his, but 
Kenny G would show up occasionally and be on stage with some of these bands. Mm-hmm. It, it was a wild scene. And, they, and bands would play and stick around to hear the other bands play and yeah. encourage them. L.A. scene, bands showed up, played, they left. They could care less. They're not helping anybody with their equipment. They're not loaning their equipment. It was a very different sort of narcissistic, insular scene. Seattle was yes. the opposite. It was almost like a massive family, and it didn't really matter what style you played. No. And I can remember times like watching shows where they didn't even switch equipment. Like someone basically Absolutely. would have a problem, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, hey, here comes the next band, and it wasn't even that switch of equipment. They just walked up there and jumped on the drum set that was already there and used what was on the stage. And I mean, well, they half would the share time, stuff, help. Yeah. Half the time it was rented from American Music Company. If you remember that. Yep. The American Music Company. Yeah. They would all they throw would, in together and rent it. Yeah, they would back. Uh, they, would, they would put the stage together and back band them and uh, mm-hmm. rent out their equipment to them. And I can remember many times being at shows when all of a sudden you're sitting there and you're having a blast, you're watching it, and you'd suddenly turn over next to you in the middle of the pit, and there's the lead singer or the gar- you know bassist from another band, and you're like, wait a minute. Yeah, weren't you just up there? Yeah, weren't you just up there, and now you're down here in the pit rocking out? Okay, this is awesome. And yeah. I mean, that, that was just the Seattle way. That was the Seattle way, and it was unique, and it was different, and so I think maybe that's what the magnet was. Yeah. So anyway, these guys, the Gits show up in Seattle, and this is in 1989, and they set up shop at this abandoned house on, on Capitol Hill. It was called the Rat House. That's what they called it. And like most bands at the time, and I lived on Capitol Hill around this time, maybe a couple of years later, but I lived there for a while, and this is how it's worked. There were all these old, big old buildings, Capitol Hill, was once a very exclusive neighborhood, but everybody had abandoned it. So it's like a lot of big houses that they had turned into multiplexes, you know, renting out rooms or floors or whatever. And these bands would show up, rent out several rooms or a floor, and they would all live on, you know, live there and they would practice there and they would hang out there. And there were lots of these, they were everywhere. Because everybody yes. at this time was a musician. Everybody was in a band. <laughs> so, everybody. Anywho, the, we're going to flash forward to the fateful night of July 7th, 1993. And this is when I think a lot of, in a lot of ways Seattle music scene lost its initial innocence and its first step towards destruction. Yes. And this is, uh, this is an interesting night that happened and there's a lot of holes in this story so Mia Zapata was walking home from this bar called the Comet and I think you've been there I've been there many many times yep. I know right where the Comet is and at some point walking home from this she was raped and murdered and then it was hours later that somebody came across her body and described as in a sort of a Jesus Christ pose. Well, and that was the weird thing because I read a bunch of the articles um, that she was last seen at 2 o'clock. The lady that found her, um, which I've heard her described as a lady of the night, but the lady that found her, um, it was at like 319, so it was only like an hour or so after the last time she'd been seen. It was 80-something minutes. Yeah, it was 80-something minutes, and they said that she was still warm, and yes. that the fire, she went and got the fireman. The fireman actually, and that's what I was trying to figure out in a lot of the stuff I read. I, I read some that said the fireman actually tried to revive her. They did. And that's what I was trying to figure out with the, 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 the cross pose, because the police said she was in a cross pose, but they would have got there after they tried to do the... Well, she was... Okay, so the police believe it happened somewhere else, and she was moved there. Yes. And... I read one report that said, oh, the reason she was laying like that is because they were doing the CPR on her. However, the prostitute who found her said several times in several reports, no, that is exactly how she found her. Okay. And see, I hadn't seen that. I just kept thinking, which I mean, 
that is kind of the position that you'd end up with sometimes, except for the feet cross is weird um, with doing CPR. But So there is this timeline that is very problematic here. And let's get into some of the, the details of this because I have found some stuff that I find a little disturbing. And again, I have to wonder what the heck was up with the Seattle police during this whole time frame? This through Cobain, through everything. So Mia Zapata had a boyfriend and she was breaking up with him. And apparently he was quite a bit older than her. A lot of people described him as kind of gruff and kind of a roughneck, in-your-face kind of guy. Yeah. But he swears that he didn't do it. He has an alibi. He was seeing somebody else. They were together that night. And Mia Zapata knew that he was seeing somebody else. So this day, she was quite upset about it, and she had been talking to several friends. She was stewing about it, and she was drinking heavily. She was going bar to bar, just like we talked about earlier. I mean, she was going from Comet over to another place and then to another place, then back to the Comet and getting drunker and drunker and drunker. And then she showed up at a a friend's apartment. Mm Mm-hmm. And this friend said, hey, you need to stay here. You should sleep here. So Mia disappears. She runs out. And then she comes back. Doesn't explain where she's been. The friend never really says that she asked her. But Mm -hmm. this is kind of what was going on at the time. Nobody talks about whether, because I know Mia Zapata did drugs. Oh, yeah. But there's been no mention that she was doing drugs during this night however it wouldn't surprise me or her friend as well and it wouldn't at all but i mean it's one of those things where every once in a while in cases like this you find where like there's proof of the drug use there's all that stuff but then they just kind of leave it out because it doesn't you know it doesn't fit the narrative it doesn't make it you know add to the story so they're just like yeah we're just gonna ignore that yeah because like it says here mia visited her friend tracy victoria kenley she, she and Mia talked. Mia was upset and distracted and mumbled a lot. And at one point, Mia bolted from the apartment without saying anything, then returned minutes later and apologized. Tracy urged her to crash there for the night, but Mia said she would catch a cab home. Mia didn't have a driver's license and often took taxis. Yeah. Mia descended the staircase. Tracy was watching her. And that was the last documented time that Mia was seen alive. And that was 2 a.m. on July 7th. The missing time we have is between 2 a.m. and 3.20 a.m. This is when a lot of things could have, might have, possibly happened. And there's a lot of theories about this. Now, the, the official end of the story is that they did a swab on her. Apparently, she had some abrasions around her nipples that she had been raped but there was no semen left behind which i find odd and they which i mean it is possible if he wore a condom it is possible it is possible but i mean usually i mean in a violent rape and how violent this sounds you're not you, you don't have time no no and even the guy that they got the, this guy who they ended up busting Jesus Mesquilla, who was, uh, when they found him, he was living in Florida. They did a DNA, they found a a little bit of DNA, they put it aside, they didn't quite have the technology at the time, and then, was it like 10 years later, I believe? Yes. They ran the DNA test, they found this guy in Florida, they found out that he had lived three blocks from where the body was found, they convicted him on that. A first-degree murder. He was sentenced to 36 years, and he died in prison. Yes. He denied actually, doing it all the time. Yes, I understand. A lot of yes. people who do things deny they did it. But I think this guy has a pretty strong case, but now we'll never know because he died in prison. Yeah, because they went back, and it was one of those ones they found. The, the DNA matched, supposedly. Um, the DNA matched, but he had a history of violence, had a history. Everything fit yes circumstantially but they weren't positive that he was there that night no not only that he didn't even have as far as i could tell he didn't have a way to transport her body around no 
And there's some other things. Like, there's a guy named, I assume it's a guy. I believe it. his name's Leah Nichols. It could be a gal. So I found, I want to read these because I, I think this is very, very interesting. This is somebody who was in this sort of side project band. They were called Hell's Bells. It's not the Hell's Bells, the ACDC female cover band. This was before them. Yeah. So here's some blogging that this person did. First of all, this Leah Nichols says, did anyone ever ask Maria about her own whereabouts the hour of the murder? She lived in a duplex that was close to the water reservoir. Maria was also at our practice that night at the Dungeon Music Studio rehearsal space. And Mia was coming back for rehearsal in the day about 3 p.m. for show rehearsal. Mia, Maria, myself were harmonizing as the bells. That's the Hell's Bells. I waited four hours outside the door of the music space. Maria had misinformed me. She told me we had practice when I had called her earlier around noon. She already had known the horrible true crime facts that Mia had been strangled to death. Why did she lie to me and act as if it was just another normal day and practice would be on schedule? I had to call the drummer Noah who informed me of the true facts at hand. This is odd after the fact of a murder that Mia should have left these facts out and it kind of gave her the creeps. Then I go on down here. She says, my name is Leah Nichols. I know the killer. The murderer was not random and her last breath, talking about Mia, was taken with her drug connection and bandmate who was a tenant to a duplex apartment that bordered the reservoir where screams had been heard minutes prior to the death from my beautiful and soulful girlfriend, Mia Zapata. The witness has never admitted the part she played in this whole bloody night. She was selfish and addicted to heroin, and it would have made her more than unpopular in the rock scene and social clan of artists on the rise to fame. The Gitz band would have been angry and blamed her and her drug supply or a supply of drugs that killed Mia and something about told Mia that she was quitting the band or something like that. I, it's kind of, it's a weird way she put it. This dealer slash bandmate witnessed the crime of violence and then cried to her boyfriend about it being something she had just seen. It was heard by the next door renter's neighbors. They were scared of drug gang violence and had, and had not let the police know. But they were told that their son, who was a club and rave show booker, I met him in 93, and later all the facts came to a connection that shocked me and disgusted me to look at the girl who was in our band. She could have told the truth. She lied to detectives, all to save her ass in the status of some rock scene uh, hipsters. She saw Mia's killer but said nothing. I met a man who knew the killer back in Cuba. The man said her killer dealt heroin as one, and was one of the bigger heroin dealers in Cuba. I think I've said enough for now. Then she goes into even further detail, and I won't read all of it, but basically she says, my phone call to the cold case team is what became the break that the investigation was needed to run her DNA through for a second time within a short period of time. Maria saw her get dragged, that Maria is a gal in the band. Maria saw her get dragged off by the killer. If the rock scene and world knew Mia was leaving a place that makes the rent and drug fix money by dealing heroin, the reputation of this so-called friend of hers that lived on the reservoir. Mia was just about to make it in success. Her band was giving her an ultimatum to quit the heroin or quit the band because they were going to have to get serious and a clear head for respect in the industry. And it goes on. So I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out who is this? Who's this gal she keeps talking about? And this is long. She goes on about how they used to party together. They hung out together. How Mia was very talented. But this bandmate, this gal who was kind of jealous of her and was instrumental in dealing heroin to her. And the band was about to give this gal and Mia an ultimatum. Quit the heroin or quit the band. Yeah. Okay. So this gal's name, I looked it up, and her name is Maria Mabra, M A B R A. In 1988, she began attending college in Antioch College. 
where she studied music, theater, film, and photography. It was through Antioch that she befriended punk idol Mia Zapata, lead singer of the Gits. Their friendship motivated Maria to move to Seattle in 1990, where she played drums in numerous punk bands, including Hell Smells, Suge, ATF, Bobby Agaya, and Los Insectoleros. Here's the interesting thing. Following the brutal murder of Mia Zapata in 1993, Maria was a supporter of Home Alive and was given the opportunity to perform with the artist Joan Jett, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, and the band X. After that, she moved and relocated to Austin, Texas, where she has collaborated with musicians from a range of genres while still focusing on her own band. And it goes through all these bands she's played with and everything. And at the end, it says... As an actress, she is constantly looking for ways to open herself as a conduit for new stories and experiences. No matter which stage she's on, Maria never misses a beat. So this person, this Leah Nichols, who was on the inside scene of this, who knew Maria, and who also knew Mia, has an entirely different take on this thing. Yeah. And from what I'm gathering from this, as opposed to just some random stranger who just snuck up behind Mia Zapata, strangled her with her hoodie straps, raped her, and just randomly left her somewhere, it sounds to me like something way bigger was going on. And if you connect some dots this gal may have had something to do with it she was very jealous of zapata yeah and that was i mean the original investigation really had a lot of that and that's why a lot of people are surprised when all of a sudden 10 years later they're like oh yeah it's this guy a lot of nobody's people. ever heard of because if you go back to old art, like I've went into the archives. This is uh, uh, from the Seattle Times, August 26, 1993, written by Mary F. Poles, P-O-L-S. And it's an entire article. Of course, you know, nothing had been concluded at this point. They're looking through everything. And they're talking about Mia's dad, who came and for years walked in all directions from the apartment that she left looking to see which way she could have gone who was there what was going on he didn't even believe that it was one singular person he was suspicious of bandmates he was suspicious of her ex-boyfriend and he was suspicious of a lot of different people he was shocked when spd just went ta-da here's your guy It's very, there's a lot of weird, um, you know, there's someone who heard a scream by the reservoir, you know, and that's where most people think she was killed and then moved to where they found her, um, which was, I think, almost two miles. There's also evidence that when she left, she went by there, they had a recording studio. Well, they call it a studio. I could, I found some that said recording studio, others had practice areas. Yeah, I think it was more. I think it was more one of these practice, uh, you know, kind of flop house places. Yeah, but yeah, that she had. There's evidence that she'd gone there, um, but there was no evidence of a struggle there. I mean, it, it's one of those things. I mean, it's there's a lot of weird. But then, like you said, she'd been drinking all day. How she much of a struggle a might there have been? She drank an, a ton. There may not have been a whole lot of struggle. She was strangled with her own, you know, the, the cords. She was beaten violently, though. According like the, to the this medical article, this is that? another archived article. This is from uh, Seattle Times. This is August 23, 1998, by Alex Tizen, or Tizen, T-I-Z-O-N. And so he's exploring this idea that it maybe happened at the studio. She said, uh, it says, Mia could have left the building by the front or rear, do rear door. She could have walked two blocks west to a Texaco station on Broadway, known at the time as a taxi stand. 
Mia had gone there many times before. However, no one remembers seeing her there that night. He says she could have gone five blocks north to the apartment of a friend, Maria Mabra, who had asked her earlier to spend the night. The boyfriend was in another house nearby and says he believes that Mia was there looking for him. Or she could have walked east back to Picora's restaurant, or she could have decided to walk south to her place in Rainier Valley. She had walked home at least once before, but in daylight and with a friend, and it would have been a long trek, and that is true. And then it goes on, so the boyfriend gets cleared, and get down here to this. Okay. It's possible that Mia could have returned to the rehearsal studio and been killed there. Many people had access to the studio, and because it was soundproof, no one would have heard her scream or struggle. That's, okay, and that's another issue I have with this whole thing. All reports say that somebody heard a scream. What she went through would have been multiple screams. Yes. Like she would have, I don't, even just on a primal level, one scream's not doing it. Because by all accounts, she was not knocked out initially by this perpetrator. It was later. Anyway, yeah, it and, says and there's a loading well, the, ramp outside the uh, studio. Go ahead. I was going to say, there. The medical examiner said the the damage to her body, if she hadn't been choked out, like strangled to death, she would have died from internal bleeding. Yeah. So they were beating the crap out of her. Yeah. Someone beat the, yeah, they beat the crap out of her. So this also says a loading ramp outside the studio would have made it easy to load her body in a car. Her per And this is key right here. Her personal microphone. And according to this article and many other things I read from her bandmates and so forth, it is something she would not part with. She always had it on her being. Was found in the studio the next day. And then two weeks later, the studio was mysteriously cleaned up, possibly for the first time. That's according to this article. Why were they all of a sudden cleaning it up? And why did, again, did the police rush in and make a predetermined decision on what happened to her? The SPD were super incompetent during this time. Yeah, because they did this. I mean, the same thing happened with Kurt a year later. They walked in and made their decision as soon as they walked through the door. I will, I mean, so I will give a little grace in this arena. This was also the same time when the Green River Killer was going around. Now, it didn't fit any of the profile of the Green River Killer. But a lot of people, and when they first found her, they didn't know who she was. And because she was found by a prostitute, they assumed she might have been. Yeah. And so they were like, well, it's just, it could be the Green River Killer. It's just another prostitute being killed. And I think they got sort of laissez-faire about it. And they were just like, yeah. That's it. It's a wrap, Joe. Off you. And then they found out. Oh goodness, she's well known in a certain you know genre here. A lot of people know. She, yeah. So I guess we're gonna have to get serious about this. And that was a couple of weeks later. So maybe that explains why the studio got cleaned up. It could. Uh, according to this, Detective Bob Gebo trained by the FBI as a profiler and a consultant on the Zapata case, lent some weight to the serial th uh, theory, but was cautious. He prefers the, serms, the term serial offender. He says, based on the brutal violence committed on Mia, the killer, quote, didn't just crawl out from under a rock and say, I think I'll go kidnap and murder a girl tonight. This guy has a predisposition for acting out violently. This guy has assaulted females in the past. And according to Detective Bob Gebo, he said at this time, only three people know. Only three people know how Mia got here that night. The murderer, Mia, and Jesus Christ. Wow. And, I mean, the sad thing, obviously it's sad that she died. But the gets stopped being the gets. They all went in multiple directions. I read a big, long blog by a guy who was 
in the Seattle scene during that time. And let me find this guy. All these stupid. And into that blog. Oh, yeah. So there's a great blog. It's called A Music History. And it's by this guy who was in several bands in around Seattle, over in Idaho, kind of up, kind of in the Northwest area. And he's recounting his time in all of these, this scene as it's breaking. He never broke it big. He was around it all, though. And on Monday, May 27, 2019, he wrote a big blog called Music History Part 40, The Murder of Mia Zapata Shocks the Seattle Scene. And in this, he talks a lot about you know, knowing her, hanging out with her, knowing the people around her, being shocked by it all, uh, sort of his thoughts. Interestingly enough, he also points to, and he calls her his friend, Maria Mabra. This name keeps coming up. And he says that he was at her, he had gone to her apartment, lived next door. Um, the apartment was owned by the same company that owned his apartment where he and his band hung out. So like I said, these guys were all, it was Tree People, the band Violent Green, all these bands. They had a four-track recording uh, system going on there. And Maria had this boyfriend named Ajax that would often stop by and join them. And if you go through this blog, he talks a lot about that night and where he was and how he found out. And he claims that for a time that he and six other people, including Maria, Ajax, and Drew, these are all people who were involved in the scene, were walking around, but that Maria was acting very strange. And when the news came down, like the, a few days later, they were all very upset. They got together. They sort of had little vigils. They were crying and mourning and she was or appeared to not be all that broken up about it you got to wonder if she didn't see that as an opportunity i mean she may have i mean it seems like she had a, a not a really big career afterwards but i mean she you know she was in the scene there's a lot of things i saw that said that you know maria was like her best friend from college and everything like that so i mean they were they were close, but how many times have you, you heard those cases where the best friend gets tired of being shadowed? Right. And I don't, me personally, I don't think Maria killed no. Mia Zapata. I do think she knows a lot more. And here's the other weird thing. The cops hardly talk to her at all. Yeah. At all. They, I mean, I think a couple of times, and according to multiple blogs, people around her know that she lied to the police at the time because she claimed she was worried about being busted for drugs. Uh, nobody was getting busted for drugs. No. In that scene. No. Nobody. No. And, and what's weird too is a lot of the articles that I did, you had to dig deep before you even saw anything about her. Exactly. Like she I doesn't said, exist in almost mo in most of the articles. She does not exist. She's a she is non persona mm -hmm. and like i said the official story is so nightly nicely packaged and neatly sort of wrapped up by the spd and this guy they don't even know like they can't prove for sure he was there not only that the dna that they got okay apparently mia zapata was she took cabs a lot and she also hung out with the homeless a lot that's another point that a lot of people don't know she helped out at like this sort of homeless shelter she hung out with them on the street she had a heart for them she may have helped this guy he who knows i don't know she may have run across him at some point she may have known him and maybe he did do it but that's not the indication that we're getting from 
the people who are actually, I'll just say, in the know. Yeah. Well, it's one of those things. That it's packaged nicely. He, he's a person. He was a bad person who had had a history of violent behavior, had a history of doing all this stuff. And it was a nice way to get him off the, the street. And like you said, he may have done it. He may have. But at the same time, there's a lot of things that look like, I mean, he was just a, a, a nice patsy. That's what it appears to me, because it seems even when they talked to him, even when they brought him back from Florida and they asked him, you know, why did you do it? Where were you? He didn't even know who she was. No, they even did a, a lineup and handed him like a bunch of pictures. Unfortunately, which I couldn't understand. Him, like, they handed him pictures of a bunch of dead girls. I know. Um, <laughs> and basically said, do you know any of these? And he usually, you know, most things I was reading, usually they'll react when yeah. they see, oh, crap, I do know that one. He didn't react to any of them. Right. So, I mean, it, it's, I mean, maybe he's just really good and he's a sociopath and doesn't have any feeling, whatever. Or, I mean, it, it's just one of those things. Everything fit enough that they can make it work. Because I don't, am I, I maybe you found it, I didn't. I looked at his record and stuff, and yes, he had done some domestic violence, and he had been accused of, I don't know, I guess roughing up a girl, some girlfriend. I didn't read yeah. anything about rape in any of his. I didn't see anything about files. rape. I, heard, I saw the violence. There was one article that I read that because he was he was an illegal alien too, um, here from oh, oh I can't remember what country it was. It wasn't Mexico. It was something in South America. Um, but he was here illegally and supposedly, but there's no documentation of it. There is one of the, you know, police were able to find records that he had done some things in his native country. Well, not surprising. I mean, he, he was obviously living below the line. Yeah. And I mean, he was a nomad. So, I mean, there was the other thing I could find. They said that he lived a few blocks from her, where she, where this all happened at the time because witnesses had said they'd seen him there but they didn't have from what i could find there was no because i mean he was illegal so he was a nomad so there was no documentation no like rental agreements no nothing like that because there wouldn't be no and he could have also been dealing heroin we don't know that either i mean he might be the one that maria's that they're talking about the the oh well leah that you were you're reading that was talking about with maria yeah, we don't know. We don't know. This, this is what I'm There's a lot of questions here. And you would think for such a monumental moment. And it, it, look, this went on for, what, 10 years? Yeah. There were specials. There were documentaries. There was, um, you know, missing. What, what was the big TV show that was out there always Unsolved looking for? Unsolved Mysteries. Unsolved Mysteries. There were all of these. They all yep. did programs and articles, and they had fundraisers, and they Huge hired private detectives, and the music community came together, and it, it remained unsolved for a long time, and it freaked a lot of people out. And the SPD, the Seattle Police Department, did nothing. Yeah. It boggles the mind, which is why I think they – also screwed up the Cobain thing so much. It makes me wonder about Lane Staley. Well, it's one of those things. I mean, it's, and I think what it was is, I mean, at that, you know, when they did all this, they, there was new technology that they said, okay, we can use this to take that. Cause their biggest, supposedly their biggest thing that they're worried about was they didn't want to test the DNA. Cause there was so little of it. Right. You were only going to get they one shot. It, it was gone. You're getting one test. So they came up with new technology, which I've read about in other cases, that you can clone the DNA. So you don't, you know, you basically photocopy it so that you don't lose it. Um, And I think when that popped up, they'd had all the stuff. Because, I mean, Joan Jett, you know, was doing a lot of the, you know, pushing for this too. And she was doing a lot of the, the, the benefit shows and stuff like that to make money for this and to find ways. They started a whole thing called Home Alive. Yes. No, which is a self-defense for women, which is amazing. I mean, there's a lot of things that came out of this that was amazing. But I think the the police were getting pressured and pressured, and they're like, we need to put this on somebody. 
We need to make this. We need to wrap this up with a bow and make this go away. I also think there was pressure to because, and I I don't I don't have any proof of this, but by the time this, like just a year later, within within six months to a year, Nirvana had been blew up, Soundgarden blew up, it, it the whole scene blew, and there was a lot of money coming in. I think there was a lot of pressure not to mess with the scene, mm-hmm. a lot of pressure from within Seattle, from the music industry itself, from all directions. So they stopped looking where they probably should have been looking, which was within the scene. Yeah, because they started looking within the scene, and then it was very quickly... Shifted. They eliminated everybody within the scene. Yeah. And then it shifted to other people. Um, There was a a taxi driver that for a time was was a, a suspect. That was part of the, you know, that was in the area and was a big fan and everything else. He was a suspect for a short time. Um, and he'd been caught lying about yeah. where he really was and his drug use. And that he admitted to, you know, bla- blacking out while he was on drugs and all sorts of stuff. And then he was suddenly, oh, nope, we cleared him. Yeah, the boyfriend was cleared. Her bandmates were cleared. And the bandmates to me was the most interesting because they spent very little time with them. The one, the people who knew her the best, they spent very little time. They <laughs> cleared them quick, super quick. They're like, "Nope, you're good." Yeah, which I mean, I'll be honest. I don't think the bandmates really, you know, had any. I mean, Moriarty and the the other, they did so much trying to raise money. They hired a fire, private investigator. I don't think they had. I think they really truly like had nothing to do with it and they were trying to get her figure out who did this and that is why i think it's so interesting about this maria mabra and that they didn't zero in on her because she i don't want to say she didn't help out but what she did was she saw it as an opportunity and she rode like I, like I said in there, she was started performing with Joan Jett, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, and all these bands. That was her contribution. And I think she saw it as her ticket to be as big as you know, her idol, her friend. That, that's just me speaking. Yeah. <coughs> but it's a fascinating story. And what's your, uh, what, what are your, you know, what are your final thoughts on this? Like, because I, I think there's more to it. I mean, I, I think it's possible that Ms. Ms. Kia is his name. Um, cause I mean, there is proof that he was living in that area, you know, between 92 and 94, which would have been about the right time. But, uh, in some ways I, I feel that it's too neat and too nicely wrapped in a bow. Um, especially just going through all the stuff I did with the Gacy and going through all that and seeing where we've been told all these years how nicely this wrapped up so beautifully. And then you're like, oh, yeah, because the cops planted the evidence. You know, and that's what makes me wonder here if this was one of those things where it fit enough that they didn't look for any other explanation. Like you said, she hung out with the homeless. She did stuff like that. She may have just helped him. Right. You know, he was an illegal alien. She may have helped him or she may have just ran into him. Maybe they were lovers. Maybe they maybe he gave I her doubt it. Maybe but, she gave him a hug, like he handed him something, yeah. gave him a hug and left some DNA on her. No, because supposedly one of the things I was reading said that it supposedly there, there was it was on her chest and it was possibly bite marks, but yes. they weren't there wasn't enough of an impression to make it to to get a teeth marks, but there was enough saliva there, and she you know. was very very hammered that night. Yes, super hammered and pissed off at her boyfriend because and she was breaking up with them. Mm-hmm. So who knows what kind of mental state she was in? Did she know this guy? Did she's like, well, let's do some revenge, whatever. And the other thing too is a uh, and. The other part is it could have been easy for someone, could have incapacitated her and her, beat her 
without her making the noise if they'd incapacitated her beforehand, which wouldn't have been that difficult with how drunk she was and the fact that most people said she always had a Walkman and she was always listening to it. Um, yeah, I don't think like she heard that. whoever it was come up on no, her. I don't think she heard anyone coming up on her. And that's one of the big things. Like, you know, I know so many friends that run that it's the first thing that we tell everyone, don't, you, you need to hear what's coming up. You know, but back then we never would have thought about it. No. And I think that is the bigger problem here because in Seattle at this time, it was extremely rare for someone yeah. to just be randomly murdered in Seattle. No. Very rare. This was one of the first ones. There was something I was reading where they were interviewing some of the cops and like half the cops said this was the first time they had ever dealt with a random murder. Every other murder or homicide they dealt with, it was a family member or something like that. This was like the randomness of this is what destroyed like the that feeling of safeness in Seattle. Right. And I think it was concocted. I think that was made up, in my opinion. I don't think this was random. I think it was a crime of opportunity. I think whoever did it or witnessed it, or whatever, or set it up, however it was done. It was because she was so hammered, and because they knew she was out alone, and because the opportunity presented itself. I don't think just this guy randomly saw, because there's lots of people who are walking around, again, yeah. that time of night in Seattle, going to and from clubs and bars and whatever. Mm-hmm. Not these days, but back then it was very common. Very That's common. why it was so uncommon to hear about somebody just getting randomly beat up or randomly assaulted or randomly killed. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of stuff going on here that was either covered up, dismissed, not looked into thoroughly. And I do believe that the SPD, once again, came in with a preconceived notion. It didn't quite work out for them, so they had to put it on delay. And during that delay, the Seattle scene went crazy, which brought a boatload, multiple boatloads, barge loads of money and attention uh -huh. and fame and people and everything into Seattle. And so there yes. was no way they were going to be allowed to mess with that scene. It would have been toxic. It would have killed it in its infancy. And so Seattle would have never taken off. So I think they sat on it and had to figure out how can we neatly wrap this up without shaking this scene up. And then, of course, they got distracted with Cobain's death and then Lane Staley. And then it sort of self-imploded on its own due to drugs. Yeah. I Again, I don't know that much about Zapata as far as I never saw her. I never saw her band. I know she was well, well liked and respected in that genre. I know a lot of people were really freaked out by it. And I put it all on the SPD who did nothing to essentially quell that because you, you felt it at the time. All yeah. of a sudden everybody was scared to death to go to the clubs. Yes. People were scared. They, we got to be out of here by 11. We, you know, make sure you're on a well-lit street because random people are coming through Seattle and killing grunge people. That's what was being taught, taught to us. Yeah. And I just think there's a way deeper story here. And I think, honestly, this was step one of a series of events that eventually killed the Seattle music scene. Because when this happened, when Kurt happened, when State, uh, Lane Staley, when Shannon Hoon, when all of that stuff happened, everybody bailed. Like, we're out of here. It was too much drugs, too much, you know, all of a sudden everything became fake because everyone was claiming to be from Seattle. They weren't from Seattle and everyone bailed and it literally destroyed 
what was a really cool thing. Yes. And I think this was step one. And I don't think it had to go that way. But I think because Seattle was so innocent and and for being a big city, it was very kind of a small town. And I think the police force was a small town with it. Mm-hmm. Very and much so. So I think there's a lot of questions. And it's one of those things, again, we know the official story, but I don't buy it. I don't either. I think there's a lot more to it. Um, I think it's one of those ones that they just needed it to go away. I agree. So they 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 wrapped it up in a bow, all nice and pretty, and, and made it disappear. Yeah. So, anywho, Mia Zapata, look into it. It's quite interesting. You do have to dig deep to get past the sort of official narrative. But yes. there were a lot of things being written, and there was a local newspaper called The Stranger. They wrote a lot about it. The Seattle Times and the Seattle PI had a lot of articles about it. There are now bloggers who have gone back and recollected and remembered that time. And I do find it interesting that this Maria Mabra well, seems to be, to me, a big part of it and was let off the hook so early. Yeah. So just my opinion. Don't sue me, Maria. I have no idea, but... Uh, I don't think you answered the questions that needed to be answered. So, I don't think so either. All right. Well, more to it. Yep, I've got the midweek edition coming up, and I'm looking forward to that. And then we will be back next Sunday with a, a brand new episode. In the meantime, email is down the rh at protonmail.com. Did you know about the story? Were you intimately involved in it? Is there something we're missing? Let us know. Otherwise, I'm Big D. And I'm Brandon. And we're out of here. See you later.